Please be seated. I'd now like to invite Beth to come up to read. We're going back a little bit into the Old Testament, to the book of Ruth. We're carrying on our series on the women in the genealogy of Jesus, and we've got to Ruth. And Beth is going to tell us all about that. Thank you. Good morning. It's great to be here, great to be with you. I think Kate's been very kind to me, giving me Ruth, when I could have had Tamar, Rahab or Bathsheba, you know. (laughs) I have the gift, she has the difficult ones. (laughs) So yes, I'm uh, Reverend Beth Powney, I'm one of the regional ministers. Um, Some of you will know what that means, some of you won't have a clue what that means, and that's absolutely fine. Um, So, Cottenham Baptist is part of the Eastern Baptist Association, which covers Essex, Suffolk, Norfolk and Cambridgeshire. And there are three regional ministers, um, Nick Lear, Graham Ross and myself. And Graham Ross and I fight over Cambridgeshire. I have North Cambridgeshire and he has South Cambridgeshire. You kind of sit on a bit of a line. And so I nicked you off him recently. I did swapsies and gave him a church in Suffolk instead. (laughs) Um, What does a regional minister do? Well, some people say we're a bit like a bishop. Well, I have all the responsibility and none of the authority is what goes with that. And I don't have a fancy hat or a costume either. Um, We help to look after the ministers of the Baptist churches in our region We help to look after churches, particularly when they're in pastoral vacancy. We help to share resources and good ideas and help to network churches together. Um, It's about as broad as you could possibly imagine, and no week is ever the same. The one thing that is consistent is I travel a lot of miles. That's consistent, particularly because I also look after Norfolk. Um, Norfolk's beautiful. It's really lovely, and I see lots of it. Um, And of course, I have the churches of the Fens also. So I always reckon that Nick down in Essex has all the traffic and I do the most miles. That's with the exception of the A14. I think I need sympathy for the A14 and you would understand that. But Monday's an exciting day, isn't it? Yeah? Well, I think Monday's an exciting day (laughs) because part of it opens. and I think that's absolutely wonderful. Oh, sad the things that make me cheerful in life, isn't it? (laughs) Roll on December 2020 is what I say. So here we are with Ruth, a passage uh, which I'm sure you know extremely well, but we're going to journey it together and see what God may say. I'm going to be reading from the New Living Translation. Is it coming up on the screen or not? Oh, well, that's probably the NIV. So you can just spot what the differences are. It helps keep you awake, in actual fact. So we're looking at Luke chapter 1 and verses 6 to 22. Then Naomi heard in Moab that the Lord had blessed his people in Judah by giving them good crops. So Naomi and her daughters-in-law got ready to leave Moab to return to her homeland. With her two daughters-in-law, she set out from the place where she had been living, and they took the road that would lead them back to Judah. But on the way, Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, Go back to your mother's homes, and may the Lord reward you for your kindness to your husbands and to me. May the Lord bless you with the security of another marriage. Then she kissed them goodbye, and they all broke down and wept. No, they said, we want to go with you to your people. But Naomi replied, why should you go on with me? 
Can I still give birth to other sons who could grow up to be your husbands? No, my daughters. Return to your parents' home, for I am too old to marry again. And even if it were possible and I were to get married tonight and bear sons, then what? Would you wait for them to grow up and refuse to marry someone else? No, of course not, my daughters. Things are far more bitter for me than for you, because the Lord himself has raised his fist against me. And again they wept together, and Orpah kissed her mother-in-law goodbye, but Ruth clung tightly to Naomi. Look, Naomi said to her, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her gods. You should do the same. But Ruth replied, don't ask me to leave you and turn back. Wherever you go, I will go. Wherever you live, I will live. Your people will be my people and your God will be my God. Wherever you die, I will die. And there I will be buried. May the Lord punish me severely if I allow anything but death to separate us. When Naomi saw that Ruth was determined to go with her, she said nothing more. So the two of them continued on their journey. When they came to Bethlehem, the entire town was excited by their arrival. Is it really Naomi? The women asked. Don't call me Naomi, she responded. Instead, call me Mara, for the Lord Almighty has made life very bitter for me. I went away full, but the Lord has brought me home empty. Why call me Naomi when the Lord has caused me to suffer and the Almighty has sent such tragedy upon me? So Naomi returned from Moab, accompanied by her daughter-in-law Ruth, the young Moabite woman. They arrived in Bethlehem in late spring, at the beginning of the barley harvest. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you so much for your word. We thank you for the rich variety which we find there. And we pray that your Holy Spirit would come and enlighten us again this morning as we consider the life of Ruth. Amen. So I think we need to do a bit of the story so far, okay? We need a bit of catch up here. The book of Ruth is just after the book of Judges, really tricky to find in a, in a normal Bible, not an electronic Bible, because it's just tucked in there after the book of Judges. And it's set in the same time period, a period in which the Bible reports that everyone did what was right in its own sight, in his or her own sight. That's quite familiar, really, isn't it? Pretty much where we are now. And then you get this whole book given over to the domestic lives of two women. How amazing is that, that God would do that? Here, nestling amid the mire of wars and battles and strife and troubles of all the Old Testament books, here we find the life of Ruth and Naomi, a little gem in the middle of the darkness. It's even more amazing, really, that Ruth ends up listed in Matthew's genealogy. And here it is. She turns up in verse 5. I won't read the whole lot. But what we have is, in verse 5, Salmon was the father of Boaz, whose mother was Rahab. Boaz was the father of Obed, whose mother was Ruth. Obed, the father of Jesse, Jesse was the father of King David. There she is, nestling in that genealogy. Such a strange thing to find, these four women 
in this list of genealogy, and I'm sure Kate has already spoken about that. So here in the darkness of this time period for the people of Israel is this delightful story of Ruth and her mother-in-law. And some have described it as like a summer morning, a fresh breeze. But to be frank, the opening verses, which we haven't read, are rather more like a cloudy, stormy day. And uh, one commentary I read described it as three funerals and a famine, because that's precisely what goes on. The characters in this chapter are having a really bad time. It doesn't get any worse. And here's the situation we are invited into. If you're having a bad time, if actually December's a hard month for you, this, this chapter's all for you. So let's just have a look at the characters and a little bit more of the context. So Elimelech is the, is the kind of the, the head honcho here of the family. He was a good Hebrew man and his name means the Lord is king, my God is king. But he may have been a good upstanding Jew, but he somehow lost his faith when the famine came. And he hears that there is food in Moab. And so he ups and makes his family travel to Moab. There's no history particularly of a famine affecting Israel at that time. But Moab moves the whole lot. I mean, Elimelech moves the whole lot to Moab. We'll come back to what that would have meant for the family in a minute. Naomi, her name means pleasant and lovely and faithful. They have two sons, Marlon and Kilion. Marlon means sickly and Kilion means failing or pining. I think they had a problem with name selection here. There's something in the name of what then happens. And what happens is they settle in the land of Moab. And after some time, first Elimelech dies and then Marlon and Kilion die, leaving these three women completely destitute The society was such that they had no means of providing for themselves. Moab, going back in time, was the son of Lot, who was Abraham's nephew, if you remember. And the Moabite people, their land was on a high plateau east of the Dead Sea, and they were worshippers of the god Chemosh or Chemosh. This god demanded human sacrifices chucking babies down a pit, actually. It's horrible, utterly horrible. That's just one of the few things they did. God had forbidden, had God had forbidden his people to have relations with them. Okay, and here God introduces the story of Ruth, a Moabitess. A Moabitess turns up in the genealogy of Jesus. I think this should make us sit up and listen because dog, God has something going on here. Jesus has some dark secrets in his genealogy, doesn't he? If you, I don't know whether you've already had Tamar and Ruth. You probably had Tamar and Rahab. You haven't got on to Beersheba yet. Bathsheba, I mean. My goodness. Have you got dark secrets in your ancestry? You know, do you watch? Who do they think you are? I've got a dark secret. My, my father's family have lived in a village in Rusper for centuries upon centuries. And the reason we know that is back in the 1600s or something, one of the family was whipped for sealing a horse. There you go. There's a dark secret. 
Jesus has dark secrets in his background. It says something, I think, about the redemption story, doesn't it, of what God wants to do with us. Now, what Ruth does here, the words she uses are so familiar to us. They're often used in weddings, aren't they? Your people will be my people, etc. Where I go, you will go. But there's a whole concept that wraps its way through Ruth, which she is demonstrating with those promises. And it's the concept of hesed, which is a Hebrew word. Uh, And what it kind of means, because like so many um, uh, Hebrew words, we struggle with the English in the translation. It kind of means it's a quality that moves someone to act for the benefit of someone else without considering what's in it for me. It's the quality that moves someone to act for the benefit of someone else without considering what's in it for me. Now that describes what Ruth does quite well, doesn't it? And you know what's actually what God does for us, isn't it? You see, God pours out his hesed over us because he moves to act in sending Jesus No benefit for him, other than obviously creating the relationship that we can now have with him. And this word turns up three times in Ruth, but it's not used very much elsewhere in the Bible, hence its significance. And it tends to be translated as the word kindness. My goodness, that doesn't really get it, does it? Kindness feels a very weak, I think, English word and hesed is a really strong powerful deep full of meaning Hebrew word. Naomi uses it in verse 8 in this chapter when she says to her daughters-in-law go back each to you each of you to your mother's home may the Lord show you kindness may the Lord pour out hesed upon you as you have shown kindness to your dead husbands you have already demonstrated this to your dead husbands. She says it later in chapter 2 and in chapter 3 when the relationship with Boaz begins to take place. This quality, moving someone to act for the benefit of someone else without considering what's in it for me, this is the essence of what Ruth does. And it's such a rare quality, isn't it? Such a rare quality among human beings. Don't you agree with me? I really think it is. Many acts of kindness are done, but there's often an agenda behind them. You just think of the elections at the moment. My goodness, the manifestos are chucking money out all over the place. Many acts of kindness are potentially going on, but what's their purpose behind them? Well, to get into power. So do we believe any of it? Probably not. But we will all vote on Thursday, won't we? Somehow or other. But here God is showing us this amazing young woman who is, remember, a Moabitess, who has worshipped this really evil god, Chemosh, who has probably partaken in all these horrendous sacrifices, but she has lived under the mothering and fathering of Elimelech and Naomi. She's experienced something of the Hebrew God. She's experienced something of the love of Hesed, from the Hebrew God. And so Ruth is prompted to stay, say, where you will go, where you go, I will go. Where you stay, I will stay. 
Your people shall be my people. Your God, my God. Where you die, I will die. And I will be buried there. Let's unpack these phrases. They're huge. They're enormous. Where you go, I will go. She's losing any concept of home. Home matters, doesn't it? Home matters. She's not just moving house, and that can be quite traumatic enough. On the scale of traumatic things in life, moving house pitches in quite high. She's not just moving house. She's moving people, land, culture. She's never been to Bethlehem before. She didn't go and check it out before she made that decision. She doesn't know if there's a nice little little plot of land and a nice little house to live in. She hasn't a clue. But where you will go, I will go. I'm setting my stool, placing my home with you, and by default, therefore, your God. Where you stay, I will stay. This isn't short term. This is long term. She's going to put roots down. She's got no expectation that she will return. Now you see, you could kind of understand if she thought, well, I'll travel with Naomi. I'll go to Bethlehem. I'll see what these people are like that she talks about. I'll see what their worship practices are like. I'll see how they do family. I'll see if if there's any way that we can be fed. And if I don't like it, I'll come back. No, she doesn't say that. She says, where you stay, I will stay. I will put roots down. This is not temporary. This is permanent. She's cutting ties with all that's ever been familiar to her. I can't say I've ever done that. Have you ever done that? I suspect not, but I'd love to talk to you afterwards if you have. Then she says, your people shall be my people. She's not only losing her land, she's not only not planning to return, she's actually saying, I will lose the identity of my nation, of my people group, which back then meant so much more than it does to us now. When my son did a gap year in Uganda some years ago now, they would say to him, so what tribe are you from? He didn't really have a tribe. He didn't quite know how to answer that. I'm English. It was as best as he got, really. But to them, it mattered. What tribe are you from? And that's much more what this is like. Your people shall be my people. I will lose my identity as a Moabite and become part of your people. The closest I can get to this is a family from Zimbabwe who was in the church that I used to be a pastor of. And um, they went for British citizenship and they invited me to their, their citizen ceremony, citizenship ceremony. I don't know if any of you have been to one of these, but you get the Lord Lieutenant there in his or her very fancy costume. It, it's a very um, stately British rite and it's done really well. And Grace and her family were so proud of this moment that they had worked towards. They'd come, well, she and her husband had come from Zimbabwe under very difficult circumstances many years previously. And she says, now I am British. 
That's amazing, isn't it? She was choosing to take on the British identity in a really strong way. And then Ruth says, your God will be my God. She thus far has worshipped God of stone, God of wood, God that demanded human sacrifices, that demanded babies would chuck down this pit. That's the worship she had known and that you only get something back if you do something for this God. And that this God is brutal and barbaric and his practices are. And she's now saying, I want to embrace Yahweh and the covenant love that he shows for the Israelite people. And she's probably thinking, I don't understand it, I don't quite get it, but there's something, Naomi, about how you have lived because she's only experienced this God through Naomi and previously Elimelech, that says to me, this God is worth losing everything for. That's what she's saying. Your God will be my God. It's no quick choice. This is, I'm losing everything by doing this. And finally, she says, where you die, I will die. This is the absolute permanency of this decision, isn't it? And she's choosing to be buried in this land. Again, the importance of land and roots in place, we can't quite get in our culture. In this culture, it meant everything. This is the quality of this word chesed, this loving kindness, as we translate it. (laughs) It's so much more than the English phrase, Loving kindness, isn't it? So much more. And here she is, this young woman that just makes what appears to be a simple decision when walking along a road going somewhere. Say, no, I'm going to stick with you, Naomi. She makes this huge decision and these massive promises. And then she is remembered in the genealogy of Jesus. And as a result of marrying Boaz, they have Obed, who then is the father of Jesse, Jesse the father of David, and I guess the rest you know as history. But Jesus had to be from the line of David, the root of Jesse. Ruth's so-called tiny act on this road, on this journey that they're travelling together, has such huge, far-reaching consequences. Her apparently simple act of just a bit of faithfulness to her mother-in-law or thinking maybe life will be better there was so deep and so profound that the writers of the New Testament remembered her in the genealogy of Jesus. So what do we learn from her? Well, I think there's something here about do we live for now or for what might be next? And do we make decisions based on what we might benefit from? Or do we make a decision on what we know God says is right? It's a challenge, isn't it? It's a profound challenge. Do we do things, truly do things, from which we will gain no benefit? 
when I was a minister in Sandy, for various reasons, I got to know the, um, the receptionist at the, at the dentist surgery. And I went in to see the dentist on one occasion. She said, oh, oh, she said, you'll know what to do about this. And as a minister, you're always like, what's coming now? Because I probably won't. <laughs> and she said, my son, he's seven. He, he doesn't want to buy Christmas presents. He saved up all this pocket money and he wants me to buy some gifts that we can give to a family that doesn't have stuff like we have. You'll know who I could give it to. This was just a completely selfless act on the part of this little lad that came just from within him for no benefit to him whatsoever. He was never ever going to see the benefit of this. He wasn't going to see the family that were going to receive it. But he wanted to do this with the money that he had. He actually did it about two or three years running is how it worked out in the end. And I did very much know a family that would benefit from it. He wasn't making this act of kindness because he was going to get a big thank you or a box of chocolates or something. (coughs) He was doing it because something inside him said it was the right thing to do. Have you seen the film Pay It Forward? It's a bit old now but it's worth another look where this child is a school project and he decides that any gift of any thankfulness, any kind gift, if I did something kind for Kate, she had to do something kind and without reward for someone else. It's an amazing film, but it makes us stop and think. And in some small way, Ruth here is doing a pay it forward, isn't she? It pays forward and forward and forward and forward. And it pays forward to the birth of Jesus who comes to redeem and save us all. But you see, Ruth's life wasn't from this point on straightforward by any stretch of the imagination. If you read the rest of the book, you know, they had nowhere particularly to live. They had no work. They didn't know how they were going to eat. And step by step, the story unfolds. All she did was make a decision But actually, she endured great hardship. She had to persevere. She had to humiliate herself. She had to live in a strange land with customs she didn't know. She must have wondered, well, what kind of God is this then that has put me in this strange place where I don't understand anything? But you see, when when Jesus breaks into our lives, it's actually at just the point when perhaps we don't understand anything, when life is hard, when life is difficult. These women were in the most dire circumstances. Remember the three funerals and a famine. They were in dire circumstances. They were going to what they thought might be better. And when Romans, we're reminded that when we are utterly helpless, Christ came at just the right time and died for us. When we were utterly helpless... Jesus, uh, God sent his son Jesus to this earth to open up his amazing act of redemption. And in the verses prior to that verse in Romans, it says, so we can rejoice when we run into problems and trials, for we know that they help us develop endurance. Endurance develops strength of character, and character strengthens our confident hope of salvation. Ruth needed to know that, didn't she? She needed to endure. She developed perseverance. I think she was probably a very beautiful person. But it all started with this act 
of hesed, of extreme loving kindness, of going beyond anything we can imagine. And so for us then, do we need to know that even if we feel in an utterly helpless place, Jesus still came for us? And if you're in a place of having to endure trial and find a way through, that it's worth digging deep with God and finding his very best path, for that's what she did. That's what she did when she said, your God will be my God. Where you live, I will live. She put her roots down with Yahweh, with Almighty God. And that's where her long-term founding security lie. So may each one of us do that. May each one of us remember the small acts of kindness that can have huge effect. And may each one of us remember the very best place to be is to be rooted and established with Christ. For when we were completely helpless, he came and rescued us. Let's pray. We're going to close by singing what is my favourite Christmas carol, so thank you. Um, Hark the Herald Angels Sing. It's also so profound in describing actually what Jesus has done for us. So let's celebrate and sing that together. Thank you.